Turn in your Bibles to Colossians, the book of Colossians. We'll go ahead and start in chapter 1. It's my intent to navigate through the first couple chapters kind of as a scenic tour before we get to our final destination in chapter 3. Colossians as a whole, as one commentator has put it, is the most Christ-centered book in the Bible. If one gave this book a theme, it could simply be Christ is all. Now, in view of having our kids in here, and I see many kids in here, which is so great, I've got a job for you, little ones. I want you to listen to the following verses, and I want you to count the number of times that I say the word all, okay? A-L-L, all. Parents, help out. Neighbors, help out. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, test time. How many times did I say the word all? I got a seven. Good. Anybody get eight? I would have taken eight. Because I said everything. And that kind of is like all. Anybody get nine? Preeminent means above all. So I think most of you should have gotten there unless you said six. I think I heard a six. That is the theme, church. Christ is all. That is the theme and the emphasis that Paul places here in the book of Colossians. And it was for this church for very good reason. You see, there were heretical notions about the nature of Christ that were playing around the edges of the church. This strange mixture of Greek philosophy and Jewish legalism was seeking to undermine these Christians' belief that Christ was all. Paul's correctives within this letter indicate that there was a deceptive teaching on the rise, and the church was or would be tempted to believe and to trust fully in something other in the person and work of Christ. We see glimpses of this throughout the book of Colossians and in Paul's warnings or what seem like preemptive attacks against this false teaching. One such false teaching was that a believer could attain some higher spiritual plane and relationship to God by gaining access to secret hidden knowledge that was only available to the initiated. But Paul heads that off at the pass in Colossians chapter 1 verse 25. If you're there, read with me. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, there is no secret knowledge. There is no word of God, no revelation necessary for your salvation that has not already been revealed to you through the gospel. There is no puzzle that must be solved in order for you to draw near to God. On the contrary, Paul says, if there is any mystery left, 
It's the fact that God has drawn near to you. That Christ is in you. Of course, once the revelation and sufficiency of God's word is threatened, then it's only natural that the very truth of the word is attacked. And Paul sensed this other danger lurking around the church. It was the dragging down of Christ's divinity, of his oneness with God the Father. There was this ongoing battle in the early church around this heretical idea that Christ was not fully God, not fully divine. But Paul corrects this. If you look in Colossians chapter 2, in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul is not pulling any punches. He says the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. Christ is fully divine. Christ is fully man. But the word of Christ was being questioned, and the person of Christ was being undervalued. Not only that, also the work of Christ was being diminished. Legalism. Legalism was and still is hard at work to turn the hearts of even Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians inward on themselves. Jesus himself, you remember, received his harshest rebukes for legalists and hypocrites and blasphemers, those who wore their religious credentials on the outside for all to see, but who were completely empty and dead of true righteousness in their hearts. Their poisonous message is that salvation is attained at least in part by your efforts, your work, your righteousness, your religious exercise. In other words, Christ is pretty great, but he's not enough. So Paul's argument here stretches all the way through chapter 2 and into chapter 3. The central point is that all of this man-made religion is a perversion of the right distinctions of body and spirit. For to use or abuse one's body for some spiritual gain is anti-biblical and ultimately destroys the sufficiency of the word and the person and the work of Christ. In fact, these efforts have the opposite effect. It's instead of one drawing near to God, one falls farther away from him. And that's the reason that we reach the application found in chapter 3 that we ought to put to death what is earthly in us and put on true godliness instead, not one that we have made up. Put off the old self. Put on the new self in the image of Jesus, its creator. The answer is not more of you. It is more of him. And that brings us to Colossians 3, 15 through 17. Let's read. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. Father, we have come this morning to hear your word. For we know that all scripture is inspired by you, profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, 
So we ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish these things in us as we seek your will, as we seek your glory, and our equipping for every good work. It's in Jesus' name that we ask and pray. Amen. Christ is all. In his sovereign reign as king, he oversees and directs the beginning and the end of every effort, every word, every deed. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. All things created through him and for him. Truly, what we see in these three verses exalts that reality, that Christ has begun something and he intends to accomplish it. And all praise will be returned to him. And so this morning I intend to show you this pattern of Christ's presence in Colossians 3, 15 through 17. Paul calls the church to let Christ be all. In each verse we will see that this happens from the provision of Christ through the purpose of Christ and ultimately to the praise of Christ. So that is the frame by which we'll be assessing each of these verses You see, when the person of Christ is under threat, the church needs a higher view of their Savior, who he is, what he has done, what he gives, and what he will accomplish. Christ provides himself to his church in order to accomplish his purposes so that he alone might receive the praise that he rightly deserves. And so we begin in verse 15. The first provision of Christ to the church is his peace. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find this exact phrase, the peace of Christ. Even though Paul habitually uses the phrase, the peace of God, in his other letters, here, this peace, he says, comes from Christ. It's because Christ is all, he reminds us. We get a clear picture of what this peace is by looking back at previous verses. So scroll back to verse 12 of chapter 3, where you can start to see Paul instructing the church to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, later on forgiving each other, and then above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Harmony with one another, that is peace. It's the very peace we meditated on last Sunday. In 1 Peter chapter 3, when we were instructed to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, these are all attitudes that promote peace with one another. And we can strive for that peace because Christ has given it to us, because Christ provides the means for it, because Christ has reconciled and brought us peace with the Father. We can now lay aside our former hatred for God our former hatred for fellow man. And again, as we heard last week, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So too here in Colossians 3, as we put to death what is earthly in us and put on that which promotes peace, this happens when the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, Paul says. The word Paul uses for rule just happens to be unique to the New Testament. But it was a common word in his day, used in athletics, and it's made its way down to us. It's the word for umpire, the arbitrator, the one who makes the final call. The pitcher calls a strike. The batter calls a ball. What's the call, ump? Which is it? Paul's saying the peace of Christ makes that call. 
Christ provides his peace as the umpire. For what purpose? Verse 15, to which you were called in one body. So Christ purposed for you to be a part of his body. And if a part of his body, then fellow members of one another. And if fellow members of one another, then the peace of Christ must prevail. Because without peace, there is no harmony. Without peace, there is no unity. Without peace of Christ, then every part within his body will be clamoring to become the head, to be preeminent. But you were called to be part of one body, with Christ is all. And we desperately need Christ's peace umpiring in our hearts in order for us to be one. So the question is always, is that what is happening when we gather together? Have we made it our priority before we even arrive to this assembly of the saints that we will let the peace of Christ have the final word? Especially when another member of this body doesn't do it the way you think it should be done. Or when they've offended you. Or when they hold a different viewpoint on any number of theological or political or cultural issues. Will you let the peace of Christ rule in your heart for the purpose of this calling to unity and peace in one body? Paul's trying to tell us love for God should abound in love for one another, especially a love for the church, the members of Christ's body. Having been reconciled to the Father through Jesus, the Son, having found peace with God, that peace should have the final word if ever our hearts are in conflict with one another. If ever that selfishness and pride rises up, will we seek peace? That's where our unity is to be found, in conformity to Christ who is all. The provision of Christ, his peace, the purpose, the unity of his body. It happens that when these are accomplished, he will receive praise. Paul says, be thankful that you have been called to this purpose, to be one body. It might strike us strangely that we ought to be thankful to God for all those fellow sinners in need of grace, just like us. To be thankful when you encounter a moment that tries your patience. To be thankful for weird church members. To be thankful for this mess. Praise God that he did not turn away from your mess. But came down to take it upon himself. We should praise God for the scandalous good news that you have been given. The ministry of mercy and grace the ministry of the gospel to display to one another in his body. You were called to one body where the peace of Christ might rule, and we should be thankful for that. We should praise God for that. But besides peace, Christ also provides, in verse 16, his word. Would it surprise you to find out that Paul uses a phrase not found anywhere else in the New Testament to make this point? Where Paul would normally speak of the word of God, here he calls it the word of Christ. It's because the Colossians, you remember, needed that reminder that Christ is God. No more, no less. Christ is all. Every word spoken by God can rightly be attributed just as well to his son. As we read the gospel according to John, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, full of grace, full of truth. Christ is all. So we need not puzzle over the plain meaning of this phrase. God's word to us is Christ, and Christ's word to us is himself. We call that the gospel, the good news of Jesus for salvation to all believe, so that when we read Colossians 3.16, it points us to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God provided his son. God gave us the truth of the gospel. The gospel is such a fitting translation of this word of Christ because it encompasses Christ's teaching. It encompasses the good news of Christ's life and death and resurrection. It encompasses all of who Christ is. He is a gift of God to us. So Paul tells us, the gospel, let it dwell within you richly. In other words, the word of Christ, the gospel, ought not be a stranger to you or even a frequent visitor. It ought to dwell, to live within you. How? Richly, abundantly, thoroughly, completely, so that you are without its want. Let the gospel, in other words, run the household of your soul. Let it prepare the meals for your nutrition. Let it direct the affairs of your day. Let the gospel protect you from intruders. Let it protect, let it provide, care for your soul with words of love and words of encouragement, words of warning, words of instruction. Let the word of Christ, the very hope of the gospel, dwell there to bind up your wounds and set your broken bones. Let let the word of Christ who dwells within you make some home repairs in your soul, like sealing up your drafty mouth, weeding out your overgrown sense of self, patching the leaks in your weathered patience. Let the word of Christ do some cleaning as well, dusting off your unmoved affections, disposing of your spoiled intentions, laundering your soiled soul, Let the gospel remind you daily to cease your striving as you try to pay off that debt of life that you owe to God. Let the gospel remind you that Jesus has paid the mortgage. Let him dwell. Let him dwell within you richly. There is a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5 which helps to illuminate a little bit more clearly what is meant here by the word of Christ indwelling us and its effect and its purpose in the life of the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence. For Christ, we have nearly all the same component parts in these two passages to two different churches. But we notice how Paul uses filled with the Spirit in Ephesians, but in Colossians it is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So now we've added another layer of responsibility to this phrase, the word of Christ. So which is it? Is the word of Christ God's word revealed through the scriptures? Or is the word of Christ the gospel message? 
Or is the word of Christ Jesus' own teachings? Or is the word of Christ referring to Jesus himself dwelling within us? Or is it supposed to be the Holy Spirit filling us? Which is it? The answer is yes. It is. These are the words of Christ. How is that possible? It's because God made it so through the very gift of the Holy Spirit. God's word, Christ's word, the gospel message, synonymous with one another in both content and intent. So too, the Holy Spirit, the word of God is the word of Christ, is the word of the Holy Spirit. Let me show you how that could be. Listen, as Jesus promised us the Holy Spirit in the gospel recorded by John, in John chapter four. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see the intimacy of the Godhead here. The Father sends the Son who petitions the Father to send the Holy Spirit to be with you forever, to dwell with you and in you. So when Paul tells the Colossians to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, he can equally instruct the Ephesians to be filled with the Holy Spirit because to both churches, the outcome will be the same because the word of God and of Christ and of the Spirit are inseparable. The gospel is founded upon the relationship and the work of the Trinity itself. Paul's use of different terms is not a theological problem. He is making a pastoral choice to instruct each church in what is most helpful for them in view of the needs of each church. And praise God that we can benefit from a fuller understanding and a a view here of these scriptures and the intimate connection between God and his word. I know it's sometimes easier to imagine and comprehend how the word such as the word of God in the scriptures and through teaching and through knowledge can dwell in us. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Not so simple to understand how God himself through the Holy Spirit dwells within us. But let's look further. John the Baptist spoke of this intimate connection. John chapter three, for he whom God has sent, which is Jesus, utters the words of God for he gives the spirit without measure. Again, the Trinity in action. Jesus speaks the words of God by the measureless presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit and the Word cannot be separated. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 6. Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. Or as we regularly sing, He speaks and listening to His voice New life the dead receive. The words of Christ, the gospel, is the spirit at work to bring life to the dead, which is why Paul can say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, Paul's not asking the Colossians to simply study the Bible more. He's reminding them, and he's reminding us of the gift of God's very presence that works in concert with the scripture to draw us more and more and more towards his son. The Holy Spirit tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus. 
That is the message of the Holy Scriptures. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. That is the testimony of Christ's own life and preaching. And that is the plan of God. He has revealed to us, fix your eyes on Jesus. That's Paul's message. That's his calling to preach and to proclaim. And it is ours as well. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That is the one message and the singular aim which makes spirit and word inseparable. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How quickly we forget the measureless blessing that is ours in Christ in this gospel and the spirit that dwells within it. But remember, in order for that to happen, the peace must rule. This is one body. It's not simply a gathering of saved individuals. When you walk through those doors, And you begin to flesh out the gospel through prayer, through preaching, through singing, through serving, through worshiping together. Then we know that the Spirit is working through the word of Christ richly dwelling in our midst. Now all of this is provided for us for this purpose, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, which happens to be the word and the Spirit's purpose Two, to teach, to relay to one another the truth of God's word, to instruct one another in the way that we ought to talk about God, the way we ought to walk with God. Though it is knowing about God and all that he is and all that he has done, it's so, so much more. It's, it's about applying the truth to our hearts so that it exudes from us. We're not simply to know the gospel. We are to live it as it lives in us. And that begins when the gospel is thriving in our minds and our hearts and is spilling out of every thought, every word, every deed. When it so richly dwells within us that it bursts forth and out of the abundance of the heart, our mouths speak to one another. And Paul directs that spirit-filled, life-giving gospel to be aimed at one another. That's how he intends to work through it, by working through you. So we take every opportunity with peace as the umpire in our hearts to teach one another, to admonish one another. Admonish means to warn, to advise with the aim to protect one another from error. That's exactly the example of Paul here in the letter of Colossians. To warn them about making Christ anything less than everything. But here's the divine mystery of it all. The power of the gospel message is all the Spirit's power, but it is a work and responsibility given to you. Listen to Paul in Romans as he describes how salvation comes through the word of the gospel. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul's talking about you, about us. God has given you the call to go and make disciples of all nations. God has given you the message of the gospel that you might teach them to observe what has been commanded by God. You, the saints of God, God has chosen to proclaim his word. Thank God for the Holy Spirit, for Christ's word in us, is why it's so important that we not mix this word with any error. I mean, the entire book of Colossians is chock full of this calling 
Back in chapter 1, verse 27. To the saints God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, you remember, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Does that sound familiar? That we might present everyone mature in Christ. That is our responsibility as a body. Do we show up prepared for that responsibility to be at peace, to be united in love for Christ and for one another? Do you arrive prepared by the word of Christ richly dwelling within you so that the Spirit might work through you to bring life from death, to bring hope from despair, to bring assurance from doubt? You were not called to Christ to be an island unto yourself. You were not called to come and get your weekly spiritual booster shot. You were not called to come and tout and maintain your preferred theological hobby horse. You were not called to come and get served by the participants on the platform. You were called to serve others. You were called to come and care for others. You were called to come and teach others. You were called to come and bear one another's burdens and to build one another up into this dwelling place fit for a king. It is made fit for our king when we honor the king by following his example. He did not grasp at his rightful position, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He became a servant. He became a man of sorrows, we sang this morning. He submitted himself to others and God, even to the point of death. Beloved, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you take responsibility for one another. For this purpose, Christ abundantly provides for you. And I love that Paul tells us one of the great gifts that he gives us in order to accomplish that, in order for all these things to take place, he says we can sing. The way that Paul composes this sentence, it seems to indicate that psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs are a means of teaching and admonishing, with all wisdom, of course. So strongly is that sense that some translators, they replace the comma with a with. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We see that same tone in Ephesians, that we are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart. Paul gives us his word, excuse me, Christ gives us his word for the purpose of instructing one another by means of singing to one another. As he says in Ephesians 4, God gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Yes, he did. But he also has chosen as well to powerfully accomplish those goals through you as well. We are all called to sing. And I know I've probably lost a few of you at that point. Some of you are afraid of your ability. Afraid of your own singing voice. I can only encourage this. 
The priority is not and has never been the tone of your voice. It's the tone of your heart. It's the content of your message. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. We sang this morning. Prime your heart with the word of Christ so that the Spirit might use you to serve others and not yourself when you sing. That is our shared ministry. So will any songs do? Well, which songs? Paul tells us. Psalms is the most obvious category. It refers to that book of poetry by the same name in the Old Testament. This was the main songbook of the Jewish people during Paul's writings. So psalms would have been recited and sung regularly in both the synagogue and at the early church gatherings. You see, the psalms are inspired scripture. We should absolutely sing scripture to one another. A hymn, this was a common word, even in Roman society, was a distinguishing title. There were songs, just like today, to be sung to your girlfriend, songs to be sung about what you did over the weekend, but there are also songs dedicated to a God, and the Romans used songs dedicated to gods, and they called them hymns. So it's not a surprise that in the Bible we find hymns. The Jews sang hymns, the Christians sang hymns. Jesus, you remember, was a Jew, and he sang a hymn with his disciples at the Last Supper, just before his crucifixion. Paul and Silas, the Bible tells us, sang hymns in prison. The earliest Christian hymns were songs to God, but more specifically, songs to Christ. In fact, we have an early Roman account that witnesses that, quote, we were, they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and to sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. That was the distinguishing mark of the early Christians and their songs, their hymns. So a song rightly defined as a hymn, will center its message on the word of Christ in all its facets. Spiritual songs, in the plainest sense, are those songs of the Spirit. The purpose of singing, remember, Paul said, was to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom with the word of Christ from a heart ruled by peace and with thankfulness. Psalms qualify because they are inspired word of God. Hymns qualify as they are inspired by and retell the word of God. They are directed to God. Spiritual songs honor the same end as those first two categories, even if their content is not directly drawn from Scripture. These songs still honor the word of Christ, and they still align with the aim of the Holy Spirit, whose name they bear, spiritual songs. These can be prayers, Petitions, laments, personal testimonies, as long as they fix our eyes on Jesus, they qualify. At Austin Bluffs, we strive to make much of singing these types of songs, songs that are saturated with biblical, solid biblical teaching, songs that do what the Spirit is intent on doing. His aim is our aim, to exalt Christ Songs that also speak honestly and truthfully about our fallen condition and our struggle. Songs that preach the gospel in every part. We do not trouble ourselves with man-made distinctions about style, about instrumentation, or about the time period in which a song was written. Those things do the exact opposite 
of what we're called to do with psalms. Those, those distinctions do not promote peace. They often make more of music than the actual message that we're trying to convey. And they are certainly no guarantee that Jesus' name will be exalted. Our priority in this church is the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and that the name of Christ would be praised in our singing. I could say a lot more about this subject, but as I get ahead of myself, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. That's a pun. (laughs) You are our choir, and I am so proud to acknowledge that you already do make much of the gospel through your singing, and glory be to God for that. I would only encourage you to strive all the more to let the peace rule in your hearts, the peace that will keep your personal preferences as secondary to this ministry of caring for one another and teaching one another, of admonishing one another with all the word of Christ's wisdom. That you would strive all the more to let the word richly dwell within you so that you come prepared to sing heartily to God and to one another. The spirit of God dwells here through this ministry of singing the word of Christ. The spirit does not show up for a visit when the music gets good. The Spirit is already dwelling in the hearts of his people, gathered together to proclaim this gospel. So sing all the more. Sing all the more of this good news and be thankful, Paul says. Verse 16, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, the thing that motivates us to sing is the same thing that singing produces. Thankfulness and praise to God for Christ through the Spirit that dwells within us. And lastly, in verse 17, Paul brings, us, Paul brings all of this into summation. Because Christ is all, all is for Christ. Let me read it again. Verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Christ provides us his name, which perfectly sums up Paul's point to the Colossian church. Christ is all. Christ is preeminent. It'd be easy to just glance off that last verse. But we get a a very beautiful picture of what Paul means by this in another book of his, Philippians, where he says, Therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father He tells those Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Christ gives you his peace. Christ gives you his word. Christ gives you his name, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, to his glory. You carry the name of Christ, Christian. Let that always remind you of who dwells within you, what you've been called to, church. It's very simple, actually, and yet quite profound. You have been given his name for the purpose of everything. Everything you say, everything you do, can be done to God's glory. Not by your strength, of course, but because he dwells within you. Christ is all and all to you, so that all the glory returns to him. This word is to those of you who do not know Christ as well. 
Paul tells us in Romans how we come to bear this name, how we find purpose, we receive his gift of salvation. Scriptures tell us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have been in the presence of God today through the Holy Spirit dwelling in his church, which bears his name. And you've had the gospel preached to you through prayers, through songs, and through the scripture read to you. And they, they call you to the same thing they call us to, to turn to God and away from your sin, to trust in Jesus, and you will receive this glorious gift of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, what are we to do? Always when we're so richly provided for. Verse 17, like the verses before it, ends likewise that we are to give thanks to God the Father through Jesus. You know, one of the most important lessons we teach our children, isn't it, is how to be thankful. One of the simplest for our family is that short prayer time before meals. I remember it being called grace when I was growing up. Let's say grace. I didn't know what that meant. But did you know that the word for thanks or thanksgiving in the New Testament is the same word that we read elsewhere as grace? The simplest form in the Greek is charis. You've heard of it in Ephesians chapter 2. For by charis you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It is God's gift. Charis, grace. But then the Bible translators change that same word charis from grace to thanks in other passages. Take, for instance, Jesus' prayer before he raised Lazarus from the dead. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I caress you, but you have heard me. I thank you. We call God's gift to us his grace as they come down. We call God's gift to us thanks when they go back up. You see, that's Paul's pattern. Every provision and purpose of Christ. These undeserved gifts to us, this grace always ends in his praise, in our charis giving. God's grace returns to him. Can we sing that this morning? Streams of mercy, grace never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. When we give thanks for anything, we're acknowledging that we've been given something outside of ourselves. And so an attitude of thankfulness is one that is always being reminded that God is giving and giving and giving. He has given us all of Christ to make Christ all. So let Christ be all. Let this gospel dwell richly within us so that thankfulness and praise will abound to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, your very word promises that you are in our midst. You are the mighty one who saves us. You rejoice over us with gladness. That You quiet us by your love. And you exult over us with loud singing. 
These gifts are certainly not ours because of anything in us. But they are because of the gift of your spirit dwelling within us, the guarantee of these and innumerable blessings that will be ours because of Jesus Christ. So Father, give us your peace that we might indeed be one body built up into a dwelling place for your spirit. Fill us richly with this gospel that has saved us. Teach us how to teach one another these glorious truths. You sing over us loudly, but we, we sometimes lack that same confidence, be it by our lack of understanding or our hard hearts or thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Help us, Lord. Heal us. Build us up in Christ so that everything you give would return back to you in praise so that we could sing loudly over you. We thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.